Listener Production. Can you imagine playing golf with Donald Trump? Or getting face-to-face with Steve Bannon, who was Trump's controversial advisor, or trying to make a deal with Tony Abbott about when he would hand you the prime ministership. Or admitting that you love Nickelback, or that you (laughs) really wanted to meet Jerry Springer more than any other celebrity. Wow, what a mixed bag. Who is this person we're talking about? (laughs) Well, this is the life of Joe Hockey, the former treasurer who went on to become Australia's ambassador to the United States. And he is our guest on this special episode of The Briefing. Yeah, we'll have the normal headlines back again after the Easter long weekend. But on this episode, it's all in on Joe Hockey. He's written a book called Diplomatic. So, He was a federal MP for 19 years and then became treasurer, but only lasted two years in the job before getting knifed and taking what at the time became a better offer, which was the job as Australia's ambassador to the United States, which he did from 2016 until 2020. But there's no bitterness in this book, which is quite remarkable. Instead, there's a lot of very juicy stories. Mm. It's also dropped right as the election campaign has started. So we're going to find out what he thinks of Scott Morrison, who took his job as treasurer back in 2015. Yeah, before we get to that, though, let's get to some of these um, juicy stories about being Australia's ambassador during the Trump administration. Joe Hockey, thank you for joining us on The Briefing. Take us to that moment that you stepped onto the golf course with Donald Trump. What was that like? He only plays on his own courses, and uh, he does own a lot of courses. So uh, we get to the the first tee, and he says, Joe, what do you play off? And I exaggerated and said 28. And he said, well, I'm giving you 18. And in golf, as you know, uh, the lower your handicap, the better the player. So you were trying to tell him you were worse than you really were, even though your yeah. handicap was not that great to begin with. Well, that's right, because I knew he'd be very competitive. And he just said, look, it's my course. I'm giving you 18. And I, okay, right. And then, you know, surrounded by 22 golf carts, all snipers and secret service and helicopters and so on. It's pretty unnerving hitting off with the president of the United States. <laughs> He's very competitive, that's for sure. And, you know, he's a good golfer too. And he doesn't cheat. I never saw him cheat. Right. He's so competitive. Bill Clinton cheats a bit (laughs) at golf. I mean, at golf, golf, golf. I play with Bill. President Clinton, he likes to play his shot three times to make sure he gets it right. (laughs) You tell a story in the book how Trump is so competitive at golf, he wouldn't even let you keep the final scorecard. Oh, yeah. Well, it was six all at at the end of the 12th and – it was a howling wind. It was terrible the first time we played. And uh, let's just leave it the 13th and make this an exciting hole. And uh, anyone that knows my golf knows it was an extraordinary fluke. But I sunk a 40-foot putt to win the game. Wow. And uh, I said, Mr. President, will you sign my card? He said, let's go and have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was it. So uh, he's very competitive, obviously. Very competitive, yeah. Whereas, again... Contrast that with Bill Clinton, who basically wrote a nice essay about me on my scorecard. So, you know, two very different characters. Yeah, I guess the point of this anecdote is it sort of symbolises how close you got to the Trump administration, potentially closer than many people expected, potentially closer than the UK (laughs) equivalent got to. And you talk about how you got um, Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister at the time, uh, a direct phone call with Trump 
again, it touches um, in with your golf connection. You got his direct number from Greg Norman. And is it true that Malcolm Turnbull then just cold called him? It's actually a very well-organised administrative process, a transition of government. And uh, what happens is during an election campaign, because of the significance of the presidency of the United States, both candidates, one for the Republican, one for Democrats, they will be allocated a huge chunk of money to set up a transition process, even though they might not win. And in that transition process, the transition team will reach out to foreign countries and say, well, if uh, our candidate wins, this is what number phone call you'll be. And I could sense that the Trump transition organisation was very disorganised. For a start, Donald Trump thought it would be a um, bad luck omen if he, he got ahead of himself by having a transition team. So he'd just dismiss the team. And the team sort of said to us, oh, well, you'll be number 32 phone calls among the countries. And I said, bugger that. So when he was elected, Malcolm Turnbull rang me. He said, how do we get on to Trump? I said, leave it to me. And I thought, who's his, one of his best mates? Greg Norton. So I rang Greg and said, Greg, do you have a cell number <laughs> for Donald Trump? He said, here you go, try this. <laughs> I gave it to Malcolm straight through. Wow. And that, and, and that was a big story in the United Kingdom because traditionally the UK has been number one or number two. And uh, when Australia, I think, was number two at I think some maybe Serbia or Turkey or someone was number one, just by chance. Oh, geez, it was front page stories in Britain that Australia beat Britain into a phone call with Donald Trump. Well, it didn't seem to work that well for their next phone call where um, Trump absolutely hammered Turnbull over the refugee swap deal. And then that was leaked to the Washington Post, which was very bad. And you, you really had to scramble. And um, this is probably one of my favorite stories of the book where you then end up in a meeting face-to-face with Steve Bannon right after this has all gone down and it looks like the deal could be off and you do your best to scramble it back. Tell us about the conversation you had with Steve Bannon. Well, at that time, no one really knew who was running the White House, even though Ryan Priebus was the chief of staff. Steve Bannon was in there and uh, Jared Kushner was in there. Mm. And they really wanted to kill off the refugee deal with Australia. And it was, from their perspective, bad politics. But from our perspective, we did a deal with the office of the President of the United States, and we expected whoever was in the office to keep the deal. Steve's a really interesting guy. I mean, I hadn't met him before. He's a little bit of a larrikin. He's obviously highly intelligent. And uh, he just, you know, was had very strong views about immigration and so on. But... Gradually, over you know, a half-hour process, I was made, able to convince him that, firstly, you don't want to pee off Australia. I mean, even though we're you know not a major player in, in the world, in the top five in the world, we are very significant for the United States. So what real leverage did you actually have in that room? Well, there are two things. Well, th- a number of things, actually. First was the bravado. As soon as it hit the media, I demanded to go around to their office, and they weren't quite used to that. So when I got there, even though they were quite adamant they were going to keep to the deal, I reminded them that during the election campaign, when everyone had written off Donald Trump, I'd invited his team around to my home, ambassadorial residence, and started a dialogue. And I got castigated back here in Australia for even thinking about engaging with the Trump campaign 
because everyone back in Australia had written him off. Everyone thought they knew best. And I thought in a two-horse race, never ride off a second horse, and I really did think at the end Donald Trump would beat Hillary Clinton. So thank God we did because that gave us the capacity to, to say, hey, listen, when everyone else wasn't talking to you, we were. Now you've got to listen to us. You owe us a favour. Okay, so you're face-to-face with Steve Bannon. It looks like the deal's going pear-shaped. You engage in conversation. What was the moment in that conversation where you think his mind changed? What were you talking about? Was it about our long um, military ties? What, what was the real crux oh, of that? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I didn't know he'd served in the Navy in the Pacific, which he raised. And uh, I just pointed out that we're the only country in the world that has fought side-by-side with the United States in every major conflict for the last 100 years. No-one had talked about it from an Australian perspective until I was the ambassador, and I was trying to work out a narrative. What do you sell the Americans? What's important to them? And, you know, loyalty, being with them by their side during tough times, that's what matters. And then, you know, it was pretty clear because, of course, Britain, the United Kingdom didn't go to Vietnam. We were in every conflict. And when you say that, every American goes, well, thank you. It's really important to them. And in fact, someone told me just recently, actually, a story about they were with President Bush just after 9-11. And John Howard, of course, was in Washington, D.C. on 9-11 and had to leave straight away. But he rang President Bush and said, we've got your back will be invoking the ANZUS Treaty. And a number of people teared up in the President's Oval Office when the message came through that Australia had, you know, was first to call and say, we've got you back after 9-11. They're the moments that America always remembers. And sometimes, you know, you've got to prod their memory. The stories you tell in your book about Donald Trump, it, it just sounds like dealing with him was utterly exhausting and this <laughs> game of kind of stepping on eggshells the whole time. You you called it last time. You predicted that his administration would win. What do you reckon about him running again? You've said you don't think it's likely. The first question is, is Joe Biden going to run again? And look, all my, all my instincts are, and probably yours as well, that he won't run again. I mean, I think Joe Biden's a fine man. I just think he looks frail. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're only just over a year into the first term, right? So three years to go. The challenge is that the Democrats just haven't got any obvious candidates at the moment. I mean, I really hope Kamala Harris steps up, but it seems as though she's having some real problems at the moment, stepping up. And then after her, there's not much of a field at all. Now, I wouldn't rule out someone coming up out of the Dems, Because don't forget, no one knew Bill Clinton. He was the governor of Arkansas. And no one knew a newly minted senator from Chicago, Barack Obama. And they came through the pack and were two-term presidents. But it's really hard to find a Democrat. And if the Democrats don't have a credible candidate, in my view, Donald Trump's highly likely to run. But if they do have a credible candidate, uh, Donald Trump will be very nervous about being a two-time loser. And in that situation, the favourite for the Republicans at the moment is the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Now, your book, Joe, has come out during the middle of an Australian election campaign, right at the start of it. I'm, 
I guess that's a good and a bad thing for you. It brings you into the narrative, but also <laughs> gets you some curly questions. And we'll get to the one about your deal with Tony Abbott in a moment. But what about Scott Morrison? In your book, we were both really interested to see that you were a lot kinder to Anthony Albanese than Scott Morrison. You talk about um, Albo as a very decent person, whereas you talk about Scott Morrison in the context of the internal fights in the Liberal Party, which you hated. And then you talk about how he ended up taking your job as treasurer, and we've seen other people from your side of politics come out and call him a complete psycho, a horrible, horrible person from Gladys, uh, Barnaby, a liar and a hypocrite, Conchetta Faravanti Wells saying he's unfit to be PM. Now, you know, he's tried to dismiss this as political opportunism by his enemies, but it appears you didn't warm to him either. Well, I think that's a little unfair. I mean, I, I want him to be re-elected. I'm, I'm going to vote Liberal, of course. I said that to Anthony Albanese. I have no real relationship, no, no personal relationship with Scott Morrison, I have a professional relationship. And I'm not going to be one of those people that because I lost to him over something, I'm just going to be bitter and put the knife in. I mean, that's why I left politics. I, I just had no desire for vengeance. I worked closely with him as Prime Minister, you know, when I was ambassador. Yet and still, you don't have a personal relationship. He hasn't come over to my house for dinner and, and I haven't been to the lodge while she's been there, but I get on with him. But so what? I mean, you know, I've, I've known... So you don't like Anthony, him really on a personal level? I, I, well, I've known Anthony Albanese for 30 years, right? And I mean, I've watched him back at university. We both came into parliament together. We went on a trip to the Middle East, a parliamentary delegation. I took my father, who was born in Palestine, and, and he and Albo formed, you know, a friendship because mm. neither had known their father. Anthony Albanese came to my father's small funeral, right? He made, took time out and, and you know, we talk occasionally and I know him to be a very decent guy. I, like, you're avoiding I, the question though, Joe. I asked no, you no, whether no, you well, like Scott you're, Morrison. You're, you're talking you're, about Albo. It's sort of, no, no, is well, that the you're answer? Inviting me, you're just inviting me to join a conga line of, <laughs> of disloyal people that are happy to take advantage from Scott Morrison, but when they don't get that advantage, they put the knife in. But you've got nothing nice to say about him. Well, you know what? I think he's done a terrific job as Prime Minister in incredibly difficult circumstances. At the end of the day, Australia didn't have the death list from COVID that the United States did. And at the end of the day, we've had to deal with, you know, the threats of recession and everything else. On performance, I mean, I I, I wouldn't criticise him. I mean, of course he made mistakes, but I mean, the last time we got rid of a, a Liberal government that had very low unemployment and the economy was humming, we ended up with my mate Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, and, and I don't like to see all the turnover that we had over the previous few mm. years. Sorry, guys, but Donald Trump said to me, what the hell goes on in Australia that you change Prime Minister every few years? I think it's so damaging to us, that whole period of Rudd, Gillard, Turnbull, Abbott, that was just a terrible, terrible, terrible period. If it came to a question of character, though, do you think Anthony Albanese would make a good Prime Minister? Yeah, I think both he and Scott Morrison are good Prime Ministers. I've, you know, I've seen bad Prime Ministers and, and I don't think either of them would be a bad Prime Minister. I think they're both very experienced. I think the biggest problem in politics is having people that are in, inexperienced who have never, never held office. And that's what did tremendous damage to Donald Trump as well. I mean, he didn't know how to be presidential. He didn't know how to run an administration for the first few years. And I think America paid a price for that at the end of the day. Frankly, that's why I don't like independence. 
Because I've never seen an independent in Parliament make an unpopular decision. And I think you need people in politics that have the courage to make unpopular decisions in the national interest. In the book, Joe Hockey, you talk openly about your dream to be Prime Minister, which was dissolved during all that turmoil you're talking about. And you said in a recent interview that there was a clear agreement between you and Tony Abbott to one day hand over the leadership to you as Prime Minister. Now, Tony Abbott's come out and rubbished that, saying it was fake news. Is Tony Abbott wrong? Uh, no, there, there was no agreement. And I said that. But what happened was it was buried in the fifth paragraph where I said there was no curability agreement. But, you know, I had a clear understanding that I'd, I'd be next Prime Minister. But, I, you know, that's usually the case with the Treasurer. And certainly in a Liberal government, it's usually the case. Because for the Liberal Party, running the economy is so important and it gives you that prominence. But an agreement suggests that I was loyal to Tony Abbott in exchange for him promising me his job. And that was not the case at all. One thing that really struck me was you talk about having that dream to to lead the country from the age of 14. And it was something that was um, reinforced by other people around you. And for me, I just thought to myself, how do you walk away from that? How do you how do you leave politics with that unfulfilled ambition? How have you made peace with that? Katrina, it's a really good question, actually. It's um, kids' dream. And I think it's really important to have dreams. You know, whether you dream of playing first-grade football or you dream of playing netball at the Commonwealth Games or running the 100 metres or, or being on stage, I think dreams are really, really important. And for me, from a young age, I, I dreamt that one day I could lead the country, that I could make a difference, uh, that I would be able to repay the debt. My family don't because it provided a home for my refugee father. How do you know when it passes? I mean, when events tell you there's no, no alternative but to go. Uh, and it's the very same feeling that, uh, you know, you'd have if you were a sports person or if you were... Um, an actor or whatever the case might be that you just you never know when it's coming but it comes joe hockey do you think you were a better politician or a better ambassador (laughs) that's a good question um i think i was a good politician i think i was a really good parliamentarian i think i was a good minister and you know i'm proud of my record in politics and i'm proud of my record as an ambassador I don't think it's either or. You know, I'm proud of my record early on as a lawyer. I mean, it's What I'm doing in the book is I'm sharing the experiences and uh, hoping that people find something that's both entertaining and informative along the way. Yeah, it is quite entertaining. I, I guess what I'm getting at with that question is, even in this interview, you've talked quite fondly of people on the other side of politics. Uh, in Washington, you've been able to reach out to all kinds of people. You left Australian politics sick of the infighting, it almost seems like you were too nice for politics and you didn't enjoy all the punch-ons, whereas Scott Morrison seems to love scrapping and fighting, which is why he's survived the way he has. Your personality and skill set seems quite well suited to diplomacy, where you've got to cross the aisle, um, bring people together, um, get through to people that may be hard to reach. Look, social media has done tremendous damage to, to politics and to the process of of democracy. Uh, Even though it's empowered people, it's basically made the voice of the critic far louder than the voice of the advocate. A range of factors have meant that politicians in in too many cases are more focused on doing what's popular than doing what's right. Yeah, I'm a conviction 
person. I, I, you know, I have strong views about living within your means, about making hard decisions, paying your way as you go, not passing the buck to future generations, do the heavy lifting. And, you know, I got heavily criticised for that in mm. 2014. But I make no apologies for it because if you don't save for the tough days, and we've just had tough days with pandemics and floods, and, you know, there are countries that don't have the money to be able to respond. And, uh, and, and we do. And we've earned that. As a nation, we've earned that, and the people have earned it by being careful. Now, you know, as a conviction person, um, maybe I wouldn't have, you know, I was never going to be prime minister, perhaps, um, and maybe I wouldn't have lasted as prime minister. But I feel very at ease, very at peace with what I've done. And I hope, and, you know, I've formed friendships across the aisle. I mean, other people in the Labor Party are no different. It's just that no one really talks about it anymore, mm. that you actually do have friendships across the aisle and there are some on your own side that you b- bitterly dislike <laughs> more than, much more than your political Like who? Uh. <laughs> oh, well, they, well that, you, you see, that's the thing. I mean, the problem is too many people find out about it and it becomes, you know, it becomes a bit, bit too obvious. So finally, Joe, you're in a different stage of your life right now. You're running a consultancy called Bondi Partners, but can you rule out a return to politics sometime in the future? I'm going to disappoint you and say I can, because starting a small business in the US and Australia, so I split my time, and going into a range of different areas, I just don't want to look in the rearview mirror all the time. I mean, the book's really closure for me. And it was also, you know, an opportunity to put on record what we did in the United States for my own family. So I'm very at peace about moving on and I'll, I'll leave uh, political life and leadership to another generation. I sound like an old man there. I'm not an old man, by the way. <laughs> <I'm> just, uh... <laughs> you're, you're ageless, Joe, I reckon. Oh, no, I was, Can't tell if you're old or young. Good, great. Yeah, well, sometimes people call me a juvenile, so... <laughs> <laughs> That was former Federal Treasurer and Australian Ambassador to the US, Joe Hockey. And of course, his new book, Diplomatic, is in all good bookstores or you can order it online at Booktopia. Yeah, that was quite enjoyable, sort of pushing him on Scott Morrison. And no matter how many times we asked or prodded, he wouldn't (laughs) diss him directly, but he absolutely found no way to say much good about him at all. It was definitely uh, what you could hear between what he was saying and in the absence of what he said that I think uh, made the biggest impact there. But he did come across as as quite genuine, I thought, and also his resolve to not go back into politics, I thought, was quite believable too. Well, considering his life sounds a lot more interesting now than it did when he was, you know, caught up in all the infighting of politics in Canberra, I'm not surprised that he wants to leave that behind and, you know continue the work that he's doing in Washington and starting up this new business. And definitely, I think, you know, now that he's made all of those connections and seen where those decisions are truly made, perhaps he can affect more change from the outside than he ever could when he was in Canberra. Listener.